LinkedIn presents. Part of the conversation that I want to have with you is what it means to be an entrepreneur, but also to be a socialpreneur, you know, like what it means to work from the heart to really kind of challenge our commerce in this country and how it's very driven towards make money, make money, make money. And we, you know, how do we suffer as a community because of that, especially as black and brown folk? Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey, creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. This season, we are part of the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. So make sure to check out our show notes for information about our weekly newsletter and live events. In this conversation, I'm talking to Amakayla Gaston, a certified socialpreneur. Amakayla is definitely what you call a multi-hyphenate, as she carries out her life's work as a healer, educator, musician, speaker, and so much more. As a nonprofit, she has worked with governments, major corporations, and individuals to help them address the inequities, conflicts, and trauma in their communities. It may sound like heavy work, but you'll quickly hear how infectious her positivity is as we talk about how significant tragedy led her down this path and how we need to shed the societal barriers that have been ingrained in us to be able to lead fully fulfilled lives. So let's hear about Amakayla's journey. And what a wild and crazy journey it is. Let's see. I have been doing work in the nonprofit sector for eons, quite honestly, and I think as a social activist and someone who really is focused on the health and well-being of the community and, you know, justice work, a lot of the work that we do is nonprofit. I mean, it's just like you on the ground, you scrap. And so you spend a lot of time trying to raise the dollars and get things gifted and, you know, find angel investors and all the rest of that stuff and writing grants constantly. But what got me into it was really the love of the people and the love for the people and the love by the people and really believing that the way that we make change is truly from the roots, from the, the, you know, boots on streets. And, and it's hard to do that because I've worked in the corporate sector as well. And I worked in the private sector as well. And it's just a different lens and take on how you can move. And I think there are benefits to all of it, especially when you're trying to create policy. But I do think that I really got into the work that I do now, particularly with my nonprofit, um, focused on the need for folk who are oppressed to have a voice. And so I, you know, there's a long story on how I got created the organization, but the net net is, just to answer your question, really trying to find a space for us through artistry, through expression, through authentic beingness a space for us to be able to hold and speak our truth and tell our story without feeling like we have to curb it for corporatization or, <clears throat> you know, make it a certain way so that people will will pay us for our perspective and our pain, but mm-hmm. to really just honor what folk are going through and try and create a stronger and more cohesive community because of it. I love that. And, you know, I guess we're very similar in that. And like, that's a lot of what we do with DCP Entertainment is like helping storytelling and helping people tell their own stories and not telling the stories for them, like empowering them to be able to tell their own stories. Hello. 
And it's so important because I think, you know, that's when you really get to the heart of not only the problem, but also the solution. Like when we kind of try to try to swoop in and try to solve the problem for people, we do no good. And we need to hear from them of what's going to actually, you know, make an impact. Come on with that truth, because I think so often people have such great intentions, right? And they have this kind of voyeuristic perspective. And I think that our our society and our capitalistic society, quite honestly, fosters that voyeuristic like, oh, you know, we're the <clears throat> provocative part of their experience of life. And so they're like, oh, let's go help the poor Haitian children. And their intention is really well, but they have no idea what people need because mm-hmm. they haven't asked. So they do the swoop in like you just described and they drop a ton of money and then they wonder where it went and they wonder why people still aren't helped. And, you know, it's that whole teach them how to fish thing. Like, how do we get um, equity across the board, not just... And, you know, this is when we were talking earlier about being a socialpreneur, not just an entrepreneur, but a socialpreneur. How do we get people really creative in crafting ways that we as a community can rise up, can be well, can hold ourselves accountable as well as um, hold ourselves in high regard? We deserve and uh, need to be honored in a way that is reflected not just by giving us more TV shows and all the rest of that stuff, but really bringing that those funding back into the communities that need it. And a lot of times black and brown folk are the ones that really need it because we live in an uh, oppressive society. That's really the dominant culture does not honor our voice and our presence. And so we have to really do what we have to do to um, be in the space and be healing and be healed by it and not just be, always working and marching in the streets. It's a, de- a desire to have that kind of wellness across the board is what I'm trying to go for. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and so, yeah, how does that, that so- socialpreneur energy, that journey that you've, that you've embarked upon, then lead into the International Cultural Arts and Healing Sciences Institute, which is a mouthful. So you have a nice acronym for it as well. Uh, <laughs> it's true. A friend of mine is like, well, you covered all the bases, didn't you? I was like, I tried, I tried. I <laughs> but you're doing a lot because you're also multi-hyphenate over here too. So we'll also touch on that as well. But yes, yes how does this lead into, into the the, uh, the nonprofit? Yes, yes, yes. And like you said, I'm multi-hyphenated. So I, I founded the organization, ICASI, that you just described. But I'm also the co-executive director for World Trust Educational Services. And we do very similar things. Arts is activism and advocacy through film and dialogue. And so, and really focusing on justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, <clears throat> both organizations have been around for like 25 plus years. And the way that I came into the creation of ICASI was, haha, this is a long and fun journey. But this story, I was uh, on my way to medical school and I was going to do my last big summer whoop de woo, going to a concert uh, at this Michigan Women's Music Festival with this. 40,000 women come and not 40,000, multi, multi, many number of thousands of folk mm-hmm. come. <laughs> anyway, I was waiting in line to get in and five white men saw a woman of color and they ran me over. I was standing in a field of flowers and so it was a hate crime that I survived. And after I got out of the hospital, after being in the hospital for many, many years, um, I got out and I was asked by the Dalai Lama by email Wow. To sing for this beautiful commemoration of this golden Buddha statue. You can hear all of this on my TED talk. It's called Dare to be Dauntless if you want to look it up. Anyway, 
the net net is when I finally got to meet the Dalai Lama in person. Because at first I was like, this is a joke, child. This is not real. Yeah, like who just gets an email from the Dalai Lama? Like, what the heck? How do you even get your email? Like, <laughs> A, right. Okay, A, number one. B, I was like, you know, this was during the time when everybody was like, I have $6 million, you know, and I'm, you know what I mean? I'm going to put it to your account. Like all those scam emails started coming up. So I was like, I don't even know if this is real. So when I responded to the email, sure, that's literally all I typed. S-U-R-E, sure, right? <laughs> this is the Dalai Lama. <clears throat> all of a sudden, I got this thing in the mail, like filled with beautiful calligraphy. And Hannah, it was this big package. I was like, oh, my God, this could actually be real. So I opened it up with my mom. I was like, mommy, open this because I don't know. <laughs> we opened it up together, child. And I, it was an actual invitation from His Holiness the Dalai Lama to come out to India to sing for all these people I've been chosen out of the, around the world, six people. So I go, I sing. It's this really funny story about how I accidentally called him daddy. And this is again, <laughs> like, <laughs> right, because you know, in African traditions, when you say Baba, it's a yes. term of endearment. Yep. It means great respected leader, father. It's a, it's a sign of respect. But in, in Tibet, it means literally daddy. So when I was like, Baba Dalai Lama, everyone started cracking up. They were so silent and reverent before. And I was like, what happened? I don't know. understand what's happening. And they were like, they love when you call them daddy. I was like, (laughs) I called them. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, (laughs) when I told him my experience and what I had gone through, um, he really encouraged me. He said, you have to continue to do this work and spread this message of forgiveness around the world because when I was in the hospital and recovering from this, I had to see all kinds of doctors, skin doctors, organ doctors, you know, every doctor had to come and see me because I was literally on my deathbed. And one of the doctors that came in was, a, you know, the psychiatry team. And they were like, well, we're sure that you're going to need to process your anger towards these men and what happened to you. And I was like, you know what, maybe tomorrow, not today. I'm really not focused on them and external hmm. anger and hatred i really want to just really focus on my own healing and it took a a lot of people have really been drawn to that part of the story because it is kind of um antithetical to the way that we're taught to like seek revenge and you know right the wrong and Mm -hmm. um and so much of that is true if you aren't trying to heal yourself and i think that what we're coming to as uh, nation slash community slash globe is that we're realizing that we need to heal. This is the healing portion of the program. So that kind of retribution and those kind of acts of, of war or, you know, righting wrongs, it's still very combative and punitive and we need to be in a restorative space and in my mind. And so when I stepped into the journey of choosing to not focus on getting back at them, Mm-hmm. and focus on healing me and getting up out of that hospital for child as quick as I could. It became very clear that the way that my past was evolving was really focused on healing and wellness and getting to healing and wellness through music and being parts of, you know, very um, artistic communities, ones that focused on like, you um, Uh, you know, herbalists and naturopaths and Reiki masters and, you know, people with crystals, like those kind of things that were complementary medicinal paths Mm -hmm. um, that allowed for the honoring of indigenous technologies and ancient ways that that are, we all know, but we don't get access to because it's so fast forward, Western medicine, blah, blah, blah. Coming back into this kind of grounded, rooted place in who I be ancestrally as well as currently 
came to this nexus point of creating an organization where other folks were interested in being at the nexus point of ancestry and and currently and looking at things that are seen and unseen. And so, you know, when you weave in international cultural arts, healing sciences, all of those things fit in that title, you know, you start remembering and honoring the stories that your grandmother told you about how to make this tincture or how to do this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, oh, yes, right. It doesn't have to always be Advil from the store. <laughs> it can be, you know what I mean? Like yeah. cod liver oil. You find that there's way more ways and remedies for cod liver oil to fix you than, you know, a leave or something else like that. Um, so it, it was very, uh, a strong kind of ding when the Dalai Lama was like, you got to, this is the, this is the path. And so when I came back after being in the hospital and went back to medical school, I was feeling the friction of like, okay, this is not all the parts, right? Like this is not all the parts of who I want to be. I need to have it woven in. So weaving together Western medicine with complementary medicine, with alternative medicine, with <laughs> all the different ways that people pull together remedies and me medicinal apothecaries and therapies that isn't just around medicine. It's really around community and mm. communication. And so I've started doing a lot of work as a cultural arts ambassador for the State Department, where I would go to places like Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria and work with Iraqi refugees. And so a lot of the places in Sierra Leone and Nigeria, working with the child soldiers and really weaving in restorative justice practices and how that looks around the world when you create safe space for people to be in communication with one another while in community with one another and you can start addressing these pains that are happening, we find that around the world, you know, it isn't just the U.S. where, you know, there's white versus black and blah, 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 blah. It really is a global phenom of us versus them, that kind of binary thought pattern that we're pulled into to believe that there's haves and have nots. When we, when we know for a fact as entrepreneurs that there's a range of these things, right? You don't have zero dollars or $10 million. It's a range of these things. And so you're always working in the, the beautiful uh, creative matrix of how do we continue to have a growth pattern and flow? And so how do we look to nature to guide us, like using water as a metaphor and using the seed and the, the earth and greenery? Like how do we use these things as learning tools to echo what we need to learn as the human species and what technologies can we pull from all around us so that we can be in a generative and regenerative space when we're trying to generate our business or we're trying to regenerate our well-being of self, that we aren't like have our work life and our, our other life. And then we're in constant struggle with one within ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody working to live for the weekend. Like how do we have our workspace, which is why a lot of people I think become entrepreneurs. They don't want to have this over here and that over mm -hmm. there. They want to weave their lives together and be like a whole well-being, complete soul. What does that look like? How do we do that? And I think that that's part of the journey. Sorry. Oh, no, not a, no. do not apologize. This is incredible. I, you know, it was, uh, to go back to one of the things you were talking about before, I, I really love your approach of that. Sorry for all the noise here. 
<laughs> Gotta I love, love New York City, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> NYC is the place to be, y'all. Oh, yes. But no, I really like what you had said earlier in terms of that holistic approach and, and looking at, you know, ancestrally, but also, you know, in the Eastern medicine aspect, um, yes. you know, to you know, look at healing, but also building community. And it's interesting, like I'd say about two or three years ago, um, I guess it was, yeah, during the pandemic. So about three years ago, like the heart of it, I really was doing a lot more reading in those spaces and mm-hmm. re- connecting with who we are as human beings and not where we've yes. evolved into just because of, you know, certain aspects of society, especially depending on what, you know, what regions you live in. Uh-huh. But it helped me feel more grounded and having a better understanding of self, but also trying to express that to others. You know, people look at you like you're crazy. So, you know, what what is that challenge for you, especially going into some of these corporations and working with Honey. governments to be able to explain this and get them to be on that level with you? Yes. And you know what? It was such a so deep that you asked this question, baby. Because I just talked about this yesterday with some other folk that are doing this kind of work and how it kind of always gets distilled down to the lowest common denominator of woo-woo, you know, like, oh, yep. that's so woo-woo or touchy-feely. And how those are barriers that are constructed by folk that are in dissonance within themselves around how they really are yearning to be in alignment with things that we're talking about. It calls to their soul and spirit, but it also, we've been trained and programmed to think that that's not a lucrative path. Mm. That's not a path that's going to um, allow us to afford the things that we want and need. And so if you're in a corporate space, like I just worked with a bunch of, you know, the medical community, uh, with a bunch of doctors who are like, I can't talk to my staff and make them feel like they're included because I have to set up a policy because they're always absent. And instead of asking their staff why they're absent and what they can do as you know, medical managers to make them, to make the space more desirable to be in, to work at, you're just running your staff ragged and they're exhausted. And so now we're back in that cycle of punitive damage, three strikes, you're out, da, 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 da. And so when we got to stop and have a conversation about what it means to be a manager and what it means to be a staff member and how we can work together to create a collective community and to actually have conversation around it. And when you start talking in a way where, you know, I might not have them all sit down and like hold hands and sing Kumbaya, (laughs) it's not that party, but it is still a space where you need to come together. You need to have a conversation. And if we get to Kumbaya, cool. But, you know, right now you're here, you know, we could talk about what needs to be done here. And so in those spaces, uh, you have to be able to read the room <laughs> and not necessarily code switch per se, but you need to be able to understand where folk are at. They not they might not necessarily believe that a lavender tincture under their tongue is going to help them, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but they might be willing to entertain the possibility that to make a, a more cohesive workspace and, and productive and healthy workspace, there are certain steps and parameters that they could set up that isn't just about policy building and punitive retribution around that way. That makes sense. Oh yeah, definitely. And and I've noticed too, you like working with these stuck individuals. And so, you know, how is that also too, of just like, I'm sure sometimes you, you either have the people who are super resistant and it's just like, it's just not getting through to them. Or sometimes like you can feel the energy, I'm sure, where sometimes like, is this just a press release? They're checking off a box to say that they're doing this kind of work. Yes. Like, how do you navigate those kind of situations? I start out the game by saying, this is not a checkbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're just, yeah, you're just upfront with it. I like it. This is not performative. This is not a checkbox. You will be doing the work because 
if it is just a checkbox, this is a giant waste of time. I'm gonna go home right now, and mm-hmm. you're gonna go home, and we're all gonna. We don't have to. We don't have to play this. You can read all of this on the web. Everything that I'm gonna say to you is not new news or new information. The words that are coming out of my mouth are things that you are going to recognize and acknowledge and resonate with. And there will be new things that you will learn. There will be new ways that you will step into this new way of beingness. Because honestly, I do believe that we're in a new normal across the board with gender fluidity, with the ways that people are using language to kind of try and rein in and, and, and acknowledge that all people in all parts are welcome at the table. And there is a ton of resistance. I mean, just look at Florida, honey. Oh, goodness. But <laughs> listen, we don't have to go on the right now. We don't got the time for that. <laughs> Maybe that's another podcast for us to process that person. But it is one of those things where um, people often ask me, in addition to, like, how do you deal with the resistance in the room, the resistance that you see on a national level, like Florida. You know, how would we, if you were in a room with him, and I tell the story of how, you know, one time I was doing a news uh, session with the Grand Wizard of the KKK and getting to a place. Yeah, honey. Wow. So it was one of those. It was one of those really quick story. It was one of those back in the day, like when they would be on the news, like a special guest, they would open up a curtain. It was like a grand reveal. Oh, and there would goodness. Be, yeah. What the hell? Yes, honey. It was like, okay. So in behind the curtain, there had three sets of two people. There was a conservative and a Republican there was, or uh, sorry, a Democrat or Republican, a conservative and a liberal, and me and the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And so we were supposed, they were going to ask us these kind of leading questions to like cause all these sparks and fire things to happen. And so when we were behind the curtain, you know, I could see how the other couplets were discussing what they were going to debate when the curtain opened and kind of planning their conversation. And this dude who was in full regalia was just facing the curtain. The curtain was right here, mind you. So he was just looking at nothing. And I remember thinking, this is ridiculous, right? This is yeah. just, now this is cosmically comical. Yep. This is hilarious, right? In my mind. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and if we were at, if we were at a club or a bar and you were in all that madness, I probably would be like, hey, what's up? You know, like, fuck <laughs> you, right? <laughs> Make them as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> right, exactly. I love the so kill of kindness. Said, hey, that's, there it is right there. So I said, okay, I'm gonna get really crafty. Well, I'm gonna see what I'm gonna ask this brother, see what I could get a conversation going. So I said, excuse me, my brother. And he turned to me, yes. And I was like, I just have a quick question for you. How do you keep your whites so white? <laughs> he said, look, here you go. Just like this, his whole body. Clorox, honey. The whole body snap and everything. I'm no. like, you're a member of the Rainbow family. So I was like, oh. So we started talking about laundry, honey. We talked about laundry until the curtain opened. Mind you now, when the curtain opened, everybody else is fighting, rah, 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 rah. And it comes to us. And he was like, well, I don't know about my African sister here, but I feel like, and he was so kind. We were so cordial to one another. It called for commercial, honey. We got bombed out by the news crew. They were like, what's going on? You're supposed to be fighting. I was like, that's not this party. This party is about bridge building. This party is about communication. This party is about crafting ways that we could see beyond the obvious barriers. And I think that that is, the higher calling. And you not only kill them with kindness, you kill them with comedy too. So this kind of dialogue that you and I are having is the same ones that I have in every corporate space that I go into. We are going to become family and we're going to talk like we around the dinner table because that's the way you get stuff done. And I'm not going to show you a million PowerPoints. I'm going to show you some, some videos and some different stories of people sharing their experiences and how this stuff affects their lives so that you understand it from a personal place. But I'm not going to be like 65% of black people, blah, 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 you know, 
it just falls flat every single time. So the beauty of this work and the work of all of us, I think, especially for entrepreneurs, when you are crafting from the ground up and it's coming out of your head, however you got to make it work, the, the beauty of that is in the storytelling, is in the creating community, even whether if you're doing it on social media or you're doing it, however you grab quote unquote followers, something in you is drawing the followers, something in your story, something in your share, something in the way that you weave folk in is about the, the power of connectivity and the stickiness of, of our times right now. And that is so amazing. If you pull way back and think about it like that, like, we are all able to connect through a global pandemic, mm. through something called mm-hmm. Zoom. Ain't nobody heard of no Zoom before. Everybody knows about Zoom now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a beautiful thing that I could talk to you in New York. I'm in California. I could talk to somebody in Abuja. I could talk to somebody, you know, all over the world through technology. And so how do we use that for good? How do we get really creative in our you know, crafty socialpreneur, entrepreneur brains to create cohesion and love and community and stop wars. And, you know, I mean, honestly, pie in the sky, like how do we make everything affordable for everybody? Like, so there's no more poverty. Tent cities are real out here, man. There's so many homeless people. Uh, It's, it's devastating to me. And what are we going to do about it? Well, and I know, especially in LA, and, and I'm sure it's not just there, um, but like I know, like they've really like moved them around, and like I know Skid Row used to be a thing, but I know they pushed them a lot out of there and over yeah. in the Studio City, and it's just I'm always, yes. you know, homelessness has always been a, a big, you know, aspect of something I want to focus on, so I'm always kind of, you know, listening out to what's happening there. But yeah, to your point, it's like we're just we're just moving the problem, we're not actually solving the problem. And That's right. Does that does that ever make you feel like in the work that you do, like, you know, these are very lofty goals of ending racism, you know, helping with the homeless situation and like all this is like, do you sometimes feel like you're running in place? Like, how, how oh, do you feel like time. you're making progress? I feel like I'm making progress because I remember people like Harry Tubman. I remember people like Dr. Martin Luther King. I remember the fact that women didn't have the right to vote until just a hot minute ago. It takes forever for change to happen. And the only way it's going to happen is step by step by step by step. So even if I could push this boulder just a little bit more up that hill, I'm going to do it. And so calling people in to care like you care about homelessness, especially people that are so busy out trying to make a buck. How If we have the tools to make a buck for ourselves, how do we create tools to make a buck for homeless folks? You know, and it's so easy to kind of like, glom them all together and go, oh, they're all drug addicts or they all have mental health problems or they all have... And that's not the case. We have no idea people's individual lives. And so my goal as my organization isn't necessarily to end racism, but to remind people to have a heart and to care about folk, even if you don't know them. Just please have some compassion for folk that you just don't know if you walk a mile in their shoes. Like, how do you do that? How can I get people to care about that black and brown girls walk in the water trail in sub-Saharan Africa? I don't need you to just give me a dollar to send to them. I need you to care enough to turn it into a way that we can get wells that have clean water to these children so they don't have to do that so they can go to school so their lives are better. Like that's the kind of ground up motion that I'm hoping the world will 
step into and join me in this dance with. I don't know. Well, yeah, you're, you're creating <laughs> opportunities, you know, for people to, to feel that true empathy, you know, to, to you know, truly kind of feel what these stories are and, and see themselves, see their loved ones within, you know, these stories. And even if they can't see yes. themselves to truly just understand that, okay, this might not be something that I can personally see, but now I understand that this is happening and what, what can I, what should I, you know, be able to do about it? Um, I think Absolutely. that's powerful. And doing that through a nonprofit also, you know, that also has to be tough. You know, tell me a little bit about like kind of starting and being able to maintain a company where it's not for profit. So you're not making a bunch of money. And like you mentioned earlier, applying for lots of grants that takes time and waiting and, you know, donations. And especially during a time now where, you know, there's a possible recession, there's, you know, people you know, holding back money that they normally would be donating. How, how difficult is that to navigate the the financial aspect of what you do? It's extremely difficult. It's extremely challenging. And I think that that is the conversation that I love having with beautiful big brains like yours and everyone that's listening. How do we shift the paradigm around money, period, as a concept? Like it's, it's bigger than just how do I get through this fiscal year? Mm -hmm. How do we shift how we maneuver with this? In a meta perspective, I like I really want to like examine and explore what it would mean to go back to like the susu where, you know, everybody's putting in a pot or how we do more bartering, or how we do more, you know, sharing. I, I live on a little petite urban homestead. And so we grow a lot of food here so that I can take a box out to the homeless folk and be like, have some fresh produce, y'all. Have some plums, have some apricots, have some apples, have some something. To, that, to just do my part. And if everybody just did a little bit of their part, you know, like here's some fresh eggs, you know, I don't know what they could do with it. I don't even know if they want it, but that's what I can do. And so if we all started doing what we could do and, and meeting everybody where they're at, then it becomes more than just the dollar. The dollar and the value of the dollar doesn't make or break somebody's lives. It, it does, but it's put, in an, it's put in its place a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we don't have to keep struggling to find ways to feed people. We have other means and ways to feed people. And it takes that kind of creative mindset and slowing down and really kind of assessing, like you said before, not swooping in and just deciding for other folks, really trying to ask people what they need, how you can provide what they need, and how the community we can't wait for the government to like shine a light on it and get to it. And we're on somebody's docket for, you know, eight months down the road. It's a today issue. It's a next meal issue. It's a, you know, where am I going to sleep tonight with my child issue? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel safe in a homeless shelter. And I don't feel, you know, what are we doing as a community for that? Yeah. So, yeah, I want to make money so that I can, pay my mortgage i'm not <laughs> i'm not i'm not trying to put myself in, in any position either where i can't care for my family and it has to be more than just me and my family that kind of atomistic perspective it's just all mine and all what mm -hmm. i'm gonna do for me that will not last very long for us uh, as humanity i think well, like yourself, I, um, you know, earlier, you know, I'd say about, wow, it's probably been about 10, 15 years uh, that since I uh, suffered a traumatic uh, situation. You know, I wasn't targeted, you know, for racial issues, but I was jumped by six people and put me in the hospital. Oh. Half of my face is titanium. And, 
you know, I, I it did certain things to my personality and certain things to like, you know, I'm a very outgoing person. I like being around folks. But now because of the PTSD, I can I can kind of get defensive when I'm around a lot of people. People don't necessarily notice it. But internally, I'm just like, oh, my God, like, you know, my head yeah. is on a swivel. Exactly. So for someone totally. like you, again, who's been through something like that, where you were targeted and been through something so traumatic, does that have any ripple effects in the work that you do in the circles that you have to run in? Absolutely, brother. And I'm so glad that you that you spoke truth to power with what you just said, like head on a swivel for so many folk, not just you and I that have separate specifically individually that that targeting. But I think for for a lot of us that are black and brown, our head is always on a swivel, mm-hmm. no matter how protected we are, and whatever gated community we're in, how much money we have. <clears throat> this society is not set up for us to have too much power honestly that's why obama becoming president was such a huge deal absolutely it broke through some barriers that we don't even know about but yeah i don't know swivel is very real and honestly it's really made me realize like it's shaped so much about even where i choose to live like i can live on the east coast which i do down in dc honey so i'll come up in new york and see you oh yeah or the west coast because that but that whole middle swath of the united states of america Especially in the South, it's some scary ass shit, baby. It's really dangerous. It's really scary. My father lives in Florida. There are Confederate flags that fly around him constantly. My mother lives in Florida as well. Listen, and I'm always like, okay, we're going to do the black man extraction. How am I going to get you up out of there? You know, like, seriously, there is no reason for you to be in a place where he's convinced, like, the Grand Wizard of the KKK is in his neighborhood. So um, there's no reason for you to be head on a swivel, my 82-year-old father. And let's just come on out of there. You, like, it's, it's too much. And I think that it's, it ain't, people are always talking about, like, why are black people so angry? Why are y'all so defensive? Why is your health rate so terrible <laughs> across the nation? Because of what you just said. We live with head on swivel. It's so hard. And people just don't know. And it's it's something that is so baked into our society. It's hard to just be like, well, yay, now there's more black people on television. You know, it's really that doesn't solve a lot of the head on swivel factor. And our stress levels cause us to have heart attacks and get diabetes. I mean, it's just such a clear trajectory, right? You're stressed. You drink. You get diabetes. You're stressed. (laughs) It's all like part of the same equation and conversation. And I think that. It would, it's so important, and I'm so glad you're doing this show, talking about how business and being creating a business as an entrepreneur still has to have a responsibility to the community. Like, mm-hmm. we aren't making it, you know, on our own. You know, I'm not running out and buying six Taco Bell, you know, franchises because that's how <laughs> I'm going to make it. You know, and, and, and maybe so. Like, even if you're doing it like that, like, what are you still giving back to the community? Like, yeah. what is our gifting and tithing and responsibility to like circle back and and you know like we were talking earlier you and i about adinkra symbols like you know the what the sankofa symbol like how do we reach back and give back and acknowledge where we've come from what folk have done to get us to where we are to this day and how can we further the path so that the young ones behind us can do the same like it's just we have to ask these questions we have to care yeah. right yeah I love how you- what are we doing man yeah, I love how you framed it too, because like you know, it, it is you know, black people are living in a constant state of of uh, what's it, uh, fight or flight, and yeah, that yes. and that is just symptomatic. Well, 
everything else that happens is symptomatic of that condition. Yeah. Do it right there. It's so obvious. And when you slow down and really think about it, you're like, oh, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, exactly. Um, but I also like to, you know, really talk about, you know, what are also some of the great things going on for you, you know, whether it be, and it, it, this is actually perfect for you because everything you do isn't just tied into work. You know, you like to live that holistic <laughs> lifestyle. So the, the wins, the good things can be business. It can be personal, but again, for you, like everything's tied together anyway. So yeah, tell me what's going great for you right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for asking. You know, what's going great is, um, we are we're crafting a series, a docu-series called Women Carry Water. And so we're making um, a, a whole informative uh, documentary around what I was just talking about earlier, the girls on the water trail. But not just the girls on the water trail in Sub-Saharan Africa, but how women around the globe from all different traditions, cultures, and walks of life, we carry water. And we talk about it in metaphorically as well as physically. You know, what it means to be a life bearer, what it means to be someone who um, shares stories and carries oral traditions like the, the water of that. Um, so many of our black and brown folk, you know, we generationally were brought over on by water. We live by the water. What does it mean to have water corporatized? So I just did a project called Tale of Two Rivers where we compared life on the Mississippi River to life on the Mekong River. And what it looks like to, along these big, huge rivers for the folk that live along the river, but the water is determined, the flow of the water is determined by big agribusiness, right? So you've got China making dams along the Mekong River. Yeah. And so people, whole sections of the river dry out and people can't fish. You know, their, their whole way of being mm -hmm. and life is tied into who and what over top of them controls how they how they have access to water. I mean, same with the Mississippi, same with Katrina, same with, you know, da, 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 da. you start looking at how um, business and life, especially for folk who are, you know, we're not necessarily disenfranchised, but we rely on water. Yeah. And so how do we play with that? Alaska, Hawaii, all the different ways that, you know, the desert here in, you know, the States, like all the different ways that, Water plays into our uh, ability to live is strong. And the stories that get lost when you lose the particular algae that grow on a particular rock because that, you know, that's now dry. So you can't do this, that, and the other thing with that particular thing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Think about the Gullah tradition and the, and the Gullah culture. So we're going to be doing a lot of that, you know, gathering of these stories and going to these places to really um, uh, share their experience, their knowledge, their message, and bring it to the larger community so folks can see and resonate with not just the need for us to pay attention to these communities, but to pay attention to water and like our, the way that we connect with it. Yeah, it sounds like such a powerful project. Wow, I can't, I can't wait to see that. That's, Me too. Wow. Like, yeah, it had my mind just explode. I was like, oh wait, that connects to that. You're, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it's so exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, anything else going on? Um, I am very excited to um do. I do a lot of work with um traditional artists, and so there is this amazing uh, Afro-Cuban singer named Bobby Cespedes. 
And we are going to be doing a lot of uh, Afro-Cuban uh, traditional songs at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. So oh, we're going to be talking about, thank you, social justice issues about Cuba and America relations, as well as making great music. And so that's what the fun part of it is, too. Like, it's not just like talking about things that have to be changed. You know, it's doing <laughs> it in a way that's still like, and P.S., here's some great music to talk about it, too. And P.S., here's some great artwork and great movies and great life and great food and great all the things that make up culture that are so beautiful that drive us forward. It's so lovely to to honor that as well. Well, yeah, you're doing such amazing work and continued, you know, work that you're doing and, and being able to blend it together, like you're saying, even with the entertainment aspects. And you know, I'm always one who talks about how like the arts and especially music, you know, are really about touching people emotionally. And that really ties back into everything that you're doing um, is that Sing emotional it. connection, that community that you're building. So I really Absolutely. appreciate all the work that you're doing, you and your beautiful soul. I'm sure that the team oh, that you work with, um, it's just absolutely incredible. And again, I also appreciate you coming here to talk to me and talk to us, this community that we have here for Entrepreneur oh, Struggle, um, so we can learn a little bit from your journey. So yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for all this beautiful work and everybody listening and watching. Thank you. So well, actually, great. I can't. I can't uh, leave before actually asking people or asking you to let people know where can they follow you, where can they, you know, get all the information, whether it be websites, social media, all that kind of stuff. Cool. You can check me out. Well, first of all, go to world-trust.org for all the beautiful things, all the movies that have been made before me by Dr. Shakti Butler and Rick Butler. And they were the ones that founded that organization and just have been doing such great social justice work with arts activism for a really long time. But you can also follow me at amakayla.com. Um, and you can check me out on Facebook and all the rest of those social media, blah, de blahs at amakayla. Uh, and um, yeah, the spelling you'll, you'll put in the thingy below exactly yep yep <laughs> and you can email me at amakayla at gmail.com i love to get emails from people that have listened to me on podcast so feel free thank you amakayla gaston for joining us on entrepreneur struggle and thank you for listening you can learn more about amakayla's work by going to our show notes which is also where you can get more information on how to stay up to date on everything entrepreneur struggle we're doing monthly live events so make sure you're following me on linkedin to learn more Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson, Brittany Temple, and Mike DuBose. Thank you for the support from the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real. <laughs>